0: It's super easy. Just visit Serial Napper on your Spotify app and click the button at the top that says exclusive episodes for subscribers. Don't use Spotify for your listening? No problem. Just visit patreon.com slash Serial Napper to get your episodes ad-free and enjoy uninterrupted storytelling while you get your naps in. Mother's Day is almost here. Have you found that truly special sentimental gift for your mom yet? Don't worry, I got you. MyLifeInABook.com is a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Here's how it works. Every week, MyLifeInABook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then, she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges that she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and your children can treasure forever. Your mom has given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. I loved this idea so much that I've started my own My Life in a Book for my children to have. The thought of my son and daughter being able to learn about my life story as they grow into their own adulthood is truly special. It's been an enjoyable journey of self-reflection for me too, with questions like, which one event made the greatest impact on your life? It's brought back memories I didn't even know I had. I love it, and I know your mother will too. Hey everyone, my name is Nikki Young and this is Serial Napper, an international true crime podcast. Tonight, I'm kicking off season three of Serial Nightmare, a Halloween series I do every year for the month of October. Everything that I release this month will be either Halloween related or more on the spooky side, but of course, always true crime related. I think most of us grew up hearing stories from our parents and our friends about scary strangers who abduct and kill children who are out too late or misbehaving. Whether it's the creep with the white van, the man with a hook for a hand, or the escaped criminal who lives in the woods. They go by different names, but these stories are often used by parents to scare their children into doing what they're told to do. Coming home before it gets too dark, not talking to strangers, staying away from places that they aren't supposed to be. Tonight, I'm covering one of those mysterious, terrifying characters out of Staten Island. The urban legend of Cropsey was created as a result of the very real disappearances and murders of young children. The stories of this truly horrifying mythical killer are even scarier once you learn about the real events that created them. I scoured the internet trying to find where the name Cropsey originated from, but no such luck. Still, this name is well known amongst many generations of people living on Staten Island or nearby. Whispers of Cropsy were heard in most households, used as a way for parents to ensure that their children were behaving and following the rules. The origin story varies depending on who you talk to. But in all the stories, the name Cropsey is practically synonymous with the Boogeyman. The most commonly accepted version of Cropsy's origin story says that he was a deranged mental patient who had escaped from the hospital and was now living in or around the old abandoned Willowbrook Mental Institution. Sometimes he would set up camp in the tree line outside of the building, and sometimes he would roam the halls of the abandoned structure looking for his next victim, which would be a child out late at night in a place that they weren't supposed to be. Legend has it that there was an underground tunnel system that would allow Cropsey to roam through the area quietly and unseen, allowing him to lurk in the shadows, waiting for a child to fall into his trap. And there were a lot of different historical buildings in the area that really fueled these urban legends, including Seaside Hospital, which was a historic tuberculosis sanatorium, and Willow Brook State School. In some stories, Cropsey had an axe that he would use to chop up little ones, or he had a hook for a hand, just like Candyman. Either way, the idea of this unhinged man prowling around in the dark terrified the children of staten island of course as these children got older and wiser they would brush it off as an urban legend a rumor a wild story but all of that would change in the 70s when children began to go missing and a body was discovered in the area known to be frequented by cropsy so let's start with where the legend of cropsy likely started from Willowbrook State School, which was not really a school at all. There wasn't really any kind of learning or teaching that happened here. It was a mental institution, opened in October of 1947, and it was built to house mentally disabled children and young adults. The story of Cropsey usually involved one of these patients escaping from Willowbrook and going on a murdering spree. In reality, parents who could no longer care for their children, who required more attention and resources, would send them to Willowbrook for professional help. When the institution first opened, it was said to be a nurturing environment where children would be cared for and helped to become contributing members of society. This would have been a really great thing, if only it were true. Almost immediately, there were rumors swirling around about the living conditions of Willowbrook, and the treatment of the children who lived there. Firstly, the institution was way over their maximum capacity. It took less than 10 years for Willowbrook to reach full capacity at 4,000 children, and it didn't help that the hospital was severely understaffed. This is especially a huge problem when working with children that have extra needs. Instead of being a place where these children could be properly cared for, It almost became a dumping ground for children that were just too much for their parents. In 1969, Willowbrook reached 6,200 patients, way over their 4,000 patient capacity. Willowbrook really deteriorated over the years, straying far away from its original intention. It was a dirty, filthy, run-down building because there wasn't enough funding to upkeep it properly. Due to the lack of hygiene, disease was rampant including hepatitis and a measles outbreak that would kill many of the patients. Some of the staff would retell stories of large rooms that they would just allow the children to sit in, naked, covered in urine and feces, rocking back and forth, moaning. People would talk about the horrific conditions of Willowbrook, but it was believed to just be gossip and rumors. That is, until Geraldo Rivera, who was just beginning his journalism career, and another reporter named Jane Curtin decided to do an expose on Willowbrook. They decided to just show up at the institution unannounced. They had a key that was given to them by a disgruntled employee. It's a pretty daring thing to do, especially for the times. They snuck into Building 6 with a cameraman, and they filmed everything that they saw. The footage was even more shocking than anyone could have imagined. There were children, covered in dirt and human waste, huddled on the ground. Many were naked because the staff didn't have time to change their clothing when they soiled themselves. They were very thin and appeared as if they didn't get fed enough. Many rocked back and forth, they cried, they moaned, and no one took care of them. The air was hot stale and smelled rotten
1: the first building we went into was number six the b ward and i was totally unprepared for what we found there in the large bare room there was one attendant and perhaps 50 or 60 seriously and profoundly retarded young boys many of them were naked some were smeared with their own feces all were just rocking back and forth or smashing their heads against the floor and walls this institution in 1972 was a crime against humanity Those aren't just words, they accurately reflect the reality of Willowbrook. It was a horrible place that New York state officials could neither defend nor explain away. Since that time, however, some significant improvements have been implemented, and this documentary, among other things, is a follow-up on what has or has not been done. Willowbrook, as it was in November of this year, is our Exhibit C in this case against the state. Under the crushing pressure of public outrage, the Department of Mental Hygiene increased the institution's budget and added 300 staff people. It also took action to decrease the number of residents at Willowbrook, reducing the total population from five to about 3,000. But despite these improvements, the expert witnesses in the federal lawsuit testified that conditions for people who remained at the institution were as bad and in some cases were worse than they had been before the initial newspaper and television exposés, a fact indicative of either supreme incompetence or grossly misplaced priorities on the part of state officials. Under the heading of Exhibit D, we present some of the specific evidence of insufficient change. It deals mostly with the physical abuse or neglect of the residents, but is not meant as a reflection on the employees at the institution, most of whom are dedicated underpaid and working under impossible conditions.
0: There were so many stories of violence, abuse, rape, and even murder happening at Willowbrook. It was a miserable place, not fit for any human being. When everything that was happening there was exposed, there was a plan put in place to begin closing the institution down, but it definitely did not go very well. Most of the patients were moved to foster homes or other facilities, while others who were deemed more self-sufficient were simply just set free and expected to survive on their own. Willowbrook officially closed in 1987, and now the rumors that Cropsey was an escaped patient changed to Cropsey was a former resident of Willowbrook, who was now homeless and living in the abandoned building and the surrounding forest. And there was some truth to this. There were rumors that some of the former patients lived in a tunnel system underneath the abandoned school, while others set up makeshift campsites amongst the trees. Either way, it was confirmed that there were people who came back to live at or near the school because it's all they really knew. Even though it was an absolute hellhole for many of these patients, Willowbrook was their home. <music> which is why I'm excited to use Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn and has been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Rosetta Stone helps you to think in the language you're learning using an intuitive process that's designed for long-term retention. Their built-in True Accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation so that you're easily understood by native speakers. They have convenient desktop and app options, so you can learn on the go, and they offer a lifetime membership that includes all 25 languages at an incredible value. And now you can save even more with 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Serial Napper listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Sunnier, warmer days are almost here. Why not get a head start on looking and feeling your best this summer by trying something new like Factor's no prep, no mess meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes? Get a helping hand to meet your wellness goals with Factor's Chef Crafted Meals that include different nutritional options like calorie smart One of these individuals who came back to live at the school was a man named Andre Rand. Andre wasn't a patient, however, he had been an employee at Willowbrook, working as an orderly. Even though he was a staff member, Andre also was mentally challenged himself. He had a very low IQ. He didn't have anywhere else to go, so he set up various makeshift campsites near the closed-down school. Andre Rand was as close to the real Cropsy as anyone ever could be, and he terrified all of Staten Island for years to come. Andre Rand was born on March 11, 1944, and he was given the name Frank Ruchan, which he would later change. Growing up, his mother spent much of his youth in a mental institution, where Andre would often visit with her. He spent a lot of time at this institution. His father died when he was just 14 years old, So, again, he spent most of his life hopping between family and just really raising himself while his mother was in this institution. He likely became interested in working at Willowbrook as an orderly because he spent so much time visiting his mother at a mental facility. When he was 25 years old, Andre was arrested for kidnapping a 9-year-old little girl and attempting to sexually assault her. Thankfully, he didn't get a chance to, because the police found him with the girl in his car, sitting in an empty parking lot. He would plead guilty and only serve 16 months behind bars before he was let out on parole, which is terrifying. He kidnapped a child, and he was going to rape her, but he was caught before it happened. People like that should quite literally never see the light of day again, in my opinion. After his release, Andre both worked and lived on the grounds of Willowbrook, as a custodian, an orderly, and even a physical therapist, which he had no training to do. The institution was pretty much his whole life, so when they ceased operations and closed down, he didn't really have anywhere else to go, which is why he would camp out in the forest that surrounded the building. Think about that for a second. It's almost as if he made the whole idea of Cropsy come to life. This man, who had abducted a child and was going to harm her, had worked at a mental institution, which was now abandoned, and he was now living in the woods and lurking in the shadows. This was a very dangerous man, and it was only a matter of time until he would strike again. In 1983, he did something pretty brazen, and I think it speaks to his mental capacity and his twisted mind. He pulled up to a YMCA with a school bus, and he had 11 children board the bus with the promise of taking them to the park. The kids, unfortunately, didn't seem to know any better, and they all gladly went with him. To me, it seems like he was kind of testing the waters and seeing what he could get away with, because he didn't end up hurting those kids, thankfully. Instead, he took them to a White Castle restaurant for hamburgers and then to the Newark airport to watch the airplanes before driving them home. Since he didn't physically harm any of the children, he only spent 10 months in jail for unlawful imprisonment, but this should have been a huge wake-up call for the police, particularly if you were to look at his criminal history. At this point, Andre's movement and actions mostly went under the radar and for now, Cropsey was still just an imaginary being, too scary to be a real person. But all of that would change. On July 9, 1987, 12-year-old Jennifer Schweiger was reported missing by her parents. The little girl had Down syndrome and was last seen taking a short walk near her home. Witnesses would say that they saw her walking down the sidewalk with a man who matched the description of Andre Rand. Because of his past crimes and the close proximity of his camp to Jennifer's home, Andre was immediately a suspect. Volunteers searched the community, including the woods and the buildings of Willowbrook. They thought that maybe she had just gotten lost, turned around, and ran into the buildings to seek shelter. The search for little Jennifer would go on for more than a month and still no sign of the little girl. Without a body, it would be difficult to determine what had happened to her or who did it. But police arrested Andre Rand anyway and placed him under a 30-day psychiatric evaluation. They were hoping to get information out of him that would lead to Jennifer's body, though they didn't have any physical evidence to connect him to the disappearance. And Andre, he maintained his innocence. And then, just days after Andre was taken into custody... Jennifer's body was discovered near the Willow Brook State School. A group of volunteers discovered an area on the ground that looked kind of suspicious. The ground had been disturbed and it had these small clay balls lying on top of it. As they brushed away the earth, they saw an arm sticking out of the ground and they called the police. The shallow grave that Jennifer laid in was very close to where Andre was living in his makeshift campsite. This confirmed to the police and the community that they likely had the right guy. Andre Rand had probably killed Jennifer Schweiger. Even without any physical evidence, they decided to charge him with first-degree murder. The images that would be posted on the front page of every newspaper of Andre was disturbing. Andre was shown in police custody, looking completely deranged and even drooling. He looked like a madman. And truthfully, he may have broken just the night before. Investigators needed Andre to talk about what he had done to Jennifer and where her body was. Without a confession, it would be a difficult case to prosecute, and they wanted to bring Jennifer home to her parents. So they played for him that expose video from Willowbrook that showed the horrific conditions. According to the officers that were present, Andre watched the video intently at first. Then he put his head down and he began drooling. He immediately shut down. His eyes rolled in the back of his head and he would not speak to anyone for several days. People were terrified of this man who seemed to embody everything that Cropsy was. He was deranged, violent, menacing, and he had killed a child. Still, there wasn't enough evidence to convict him of the murder, so he was only charged with kidnapping and unlawful imprisonment, which came with a 25-year sentence with the possibility of parole. Staten Island investigators didn't believe that Jennifer was the only child that Andre had killed, and they began to take a closer look at other missing children in the area. There were several that they believed that he could have been responsible for, including 5-year-old Alice Pereira, who disappeared in 1972 while she was playing in the lobby of her apartment building with her brother. The boy had left her alone for just a brief moment, and when he returned, his little sister was gone. At first, authorities believed that maybe her father had abducted her and taken her out of the country due to an ongoing custody battle between her mom and dad, but that turned out to not be the case. Alice's body has never been found, and Andre has never admitted to the murder, though he is still the primary suspect. He just so happened to be working as a painter at Allison's apartment building when she went missing. So it's too strange of a coincidence to simply dismiss. Then there was seven-year-old Holly Ann Hughes, who disappeared in July of 1981. Her mother had sent her to the store to buy a bar of soap. The clerk at the store remembered seeing her because she was a little short on change, but he let her have the soap anyway. After leaving the store, Holly Ann would never be seen again. Andre was questioned regarding Holly Ann's disappearance. Witnesses testified that they saw his green Volkswagen circling the area of the store on the day that Holly went missing. Andre would admit to speaking with Holly that day. Yeah, he admitted that he spoke to that little girl, even saying that he gave her money to buy soap because she was dirty. Though investigators fully believed that he was involved, again, they didn't have any physical evidence to connect him. It would take police 20 years to bring charges against him for Holly Ann while he was in prison for Jennifer's murder. This is another case where Holly Ann's body has never been found, so we don't truly know what happened to her. For this reason, Andre was never charged with murder, only kidnapping, which gave him another 25-year sentence. Next, there was 11-year-old Thais Jackson, who disappeared from the Mariners Harbor Motel in 1983, just 12 days after Andre had been released from prison for kidnapping the little 9-year-old girl. While her mother was sleeping, another resident of the motel asked Thais to go pick up some chicken wings from the supermarket. She was never seen alive again, and her body has never been found, but Andre is once again the main suspect in her disappearance. He had a campsite less than half a mile from the motel, and Thais' mother, she said that she saw a man that matched Andre's description lurking around in the parking lot shortly before her daughter disappeared. Again, it's just way too convenient to be a coincidence. Finally, investigators believed that Andre had abducted 22-year-old Hank Gafforio, who was mentally challenged. Hank was last seen in 1984 at the spa lounge having a drink with a man that looked like Andre. He stayed until closing time, and when he left, he was never seen or heard from again. These are all cases of suspicion, and Andre has never been charged with any of their murders, but you've got to look at the probability. His connection to all of these disappearances and more, and his previously proven criminal actions, kind of make you think he could have done it. There were theories that he was not just abducting children for his own reasons, but that he was part of a cult and he was sacrificing these kids to the devil. There were rumors that Andre would dig up dead bodies at a nearby cemetery and then have sex with them. There was also a theory that he was part of this underground network of other homeless and mentally challenged individuals who all lived under the abandoned Willowbrook building. Some investigators believed that he would abduct these children and then pass them around to his friends to abuse. But again, this has never been proven, and he claims that he is completely innocent. Unless you speak to some of his prison buddies who say that he has bragged about the killings and he has even compared himself to Ted Bundy because they both owned Volkswagens. In the 2009 documentary titled Cropsy, there's an interview with a former minister of a church who said that he was asked by the police to let Andre live with him so that they could get information out of him. They wiretapped the phone in the house, they placed bugs in the rooms, and they had police surveillance sitting outside of the home at all times. According to this minister, Andre confessed to him that he was the one who kidnapped and murdered little Jennifer Schweiger because her family didn't want her and she was all alone. Apparently, Andre also said that it was part of his mission to cleanse the world of imperfect children meaning these children who had any sort of mental or physical disability, which is truly, truly sickening, truly disturbing. Andre Rand will become eligible for parole in 2037 when he will be 93 years old. He has never been charged with any of the children's murders, only the kidnapping and the attempted rape charge. Did this monster stalk and kill these kids? We don't know for sure, but it's more than possible. If Andre Rand is really Cropsey, at least we know that he will likely die an old man all alone in his cold prison cell, which is more than one could hope for punishing a man made of urban legend. Still, keep your babies close, stay out of the woods, and abandon buildings. Because if Cropsey is real, he likely lives within the minds of other sadistic, tormented souls like Andre Rand. That's it for me tonight. If you want to reach out, you can find me on Facebook at Serial Napper. You can also search for me on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen your podcasts. Check me out on Twitter at Serial underscore Napper or I'm on YouTube, Nikki Young, Serial Napper, and that's all one word. Until next time, sleep tight and don't look under the bed. Bye.
1: I'm Dean. I'm the dad. I'm Laura. I'm the mom. And I'm Crystalyn. I'm the daughter. And together we are. Family. Family Plot! The Family Plot
0: Podcast, a show where we discuss history, folklore,
1: true crime, and the paranormal.
0: Minus all the oogie bits. are RPG 13. I'm almost
1: 15 now. Don't ruin the commercial.
0: Do. Catch us looking into special topics like the origins of fairy tales,
1: Sherlock Holmes,
0: and the trial of Dr. Hyde and Mr. Swope. Find out who Dad's Man Crush is,
1: or what happens in Krista's Corner.
0: But behave, you two. So come be a part of the
1: fam. Available on Google, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Family Plot Podcast. Bye!